0: It's hard to believe it's been five years today. Um, Holly and I were talking uh, on our way home from our, our trip, visiting with family last week. Uh, we, we certainly love our family, our biological family, very dearly. But in a real sense, a very real sense, deeper than I could explain to you in the time I have this morning, um, the church is our family. Um... And I think that's as it should be. And so to you, I say thank you and I love you. And there's no no one I'd rather spend a Sunday with than with you. This morning, we have in front of us a, a fourth divine distinction given to us from the first two chapters of God's word. And I want to begin with a question. Is every human Life worth living? Is every human life worth living? That's the question that was asked by two German professors in their 1920 book. And I'm going to try to pronounce it. If you know German, you can correct me later Die Freigabe der Vernichtung Lebens und Lebens. The book title roughly translates permitting the destruction of life, unworthy of life. Lebens unwerten Lebens, life unworthy of life. That phrase eventually became a philosophy among the German medical elites in the early 20th century. Was it right to waste limited and expensive medical resources on those whose lives weren't worth living. The brain damaged, the intellectually disabled, the psychiatrically ill were considered by these German authors mentally dead and empty shells of human beings. Surely killing such people would be useful both for the individual and the good of the society as a whole. Some lives were not worthy of life. Within two decades, that philosophy moved from the academic papers in the German elite and universities to the political realities of life in Berlin. Lebens und Lebens, life unworthy of life, would become a rallying cry for Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany. First came the, the forced sterilization of those considered hereditarily sick no one knows for sure how many were sterilized but estimates generous or conservative estimates rather range from between 200 to 350,000 people after that came the mandatory registration of any child aged 3 and under suffering from a handicap or serious medical condition those children whose lives were considered unworthy of life were taken to killing centers that were called children's specialty institutions or therapeutic convalescent institutions. Yes, the the prince of death often appears as an angel of light. Eventually, the program was expanded to include the extermination of of youths that were considered juvenile delinquents and no value to society. Then came the the sanitariums and the nursing homes. Doctors of any patient under long-term care would would fill out a form listing a parents, various medical conditions. That form would then be sent to a Nazi bureaucratic administrator who would mark the form with a red X, meaning that this was another life unworthy of life, or with a blue dash, meaning that this patient should be permitted to live. If a patient received a red X on their form, then the common welfare ambulance service, as they were called, would pick up those lives considered unworthy of life and transport them to one of six killing centers scattered throughout the country. It was only a matter of time until that slow and secret extermination of the mentally handicapped and physically disabled paved the way for the Nazi final solution to exterminate an entire ethnic group. Lebens unverten Lebens was the justification for the systemic murder of millions of people whose lives were not considered worthy of life. From the mentally and physically handicapped, to political opponents, to the so-called ethnically inferior. Here's the question I want you to consider this morning. Why is Lebens, Unverten Lebens, life unworthy of life, why is it wrong? Why is it wrong? Now, I don't know of a single person, single rational person who would argue for the mass extermination of human life on the same scale of Nazi Germany, but many would argue for it on a smaller scale. Why is it wrong to encourage the sterilization of young people so that they don't bring new life into a weary world? Why is it wrong to encourage a pregnant mother to exterminate the unborn life within her based on the results of a prenatal test? Why is it wrong to take the, the life of a human being whose so-called quality of life does not meet our standards? Why is it wrong to allow people to choose death with dignity? To answer these and other questions, you need to understand the distinction between life and death. And that's, that distinction, once again, is given to us right, in the first two chapters of God's word. So if you're not in your Bibles already, go to Genesis chapter two. This is week four of this mini-series on five divine distinctions in these two chapters of scripture. These distinctions, understanding them correctly is absolutely crucial to building a biblical worldview, a right and an accurate and true and life-affirming view of the world. We've considered the distinction between the Creator and the creation, humanity and the the rest of creation, male and female. And today, we'll consider the distinction between life and death. I'm going to start reading in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Go down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Once again, we're gonna ask two questions from this passage this morning. What does this mean and why does it matter? What does it mean? I wanna show you four Implications, clear implications from this distinction between life and death pictured for us in Genesis chapter 2. First of all, we see clearly that life is a gift from God. Life is a gift from God. Genesis 2 verse 7 says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. We see here that God, in his kindness, in his love, in his generosity, he is choosing to bring life, to literally breathe life into the nostrils of Adam. Why did God create Why did he bring life? Why did he give life? I've heard preachers, well-meaning preachers, I'm sure, say before that God created life because he was lonely and he he needed companionship, he needed relationship, but this is, of course, a, a misunderstanding of who God is because God exists eternally in relationship. This sets the God of Christianity apart from every other being ever imagined, and that he is a three-personal God. Within himself, he is one God in three persons, and he has existed forever in a relationship of love between Father, Son, and Spirit. But because of that eternal love relationship between the three persons of God, that love overflows into life. God does not create because he, he needs to create, but almost in a sense as if he can't help but create. As the love between a husband and wife overflows into love for their offspring, so do the love of God overflows into life. And it creates in an overflowing, a bubbling up of his very being of love. He creates Adam and Eve and gives them life. This life we we know from the scriptures is a good gift. Seven times in Genesis chapter one, God looks at what he's created and calls it good. James chapter 2 or 1 verse 17 says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change every good gift you enjoy dear brother sister friend is a gift from a loving unchanging generous gracious kind everlasting father every gift that he gives you is good now to this point i think that it's helpful for us to correct a common all too common misconception in our world today that life is worth living when it reaches some arbitrary subjective quality I can't tell you how many even Christians I've heard say things like, well, when I get to such and such a state, I don't want to live anymore. In other words, life is only worth living when it reaches this level of quality. Anything less than that is life unworthy of life. Dear brother, sister, friend, hear me. Life, human life is precious not because of its quality but because of its source because it comes from God, because God himself breathed life into you. Your life matters because of who it came from, because who made you. A second implication from this distinction between life and death is that death is an unnatural consequence if you read the first two chapters of Genesis, you're seeing a picture of a perfect world, a world without sin. You see God saying over and over again, it is good, it is good, this is good, this is good. And, but in, even in the midst of those first two chapters, we see a hint of what's about to happen. Because in chapter 2, verse 17 God says himself to Adam of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death is not a natural part of the created order. It's it's an unnatural consequence. It's, It's the result of sin. Think about the garden Adam and Eve's eventual death wasn't a, some sort of a tit-for-tat. Like, they, they died because, you know, they broke God's commandment and say, oh, okay, you're gonna die now. No, death, death happens because that's what sin does. The essence of sin is death. To sin is to turn your back on God who himself is life. So Romans chapter five, verse 12, tells us, therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Do you remember the story of the Trojan horse? How this great big horse was given at Troy, and inside of that horse were all the troops that would destroy the city, right? Death is like, uh, it's like inside the Trojan horse of sin, sin leads to death. It promises life. It promises beauty. It promises joy and happiness and being yourself and being recognized and receiving pleasure. But in the end, once it's inside, death comes. Listen, young people, Sometimes we feel, and older people too, we feel strapped by God's word as if God is some sort of a cosmic killjoy trying to keep us from having any fun. Listen, God's word is not trying to kill your fun. It's trying to save your life. Sin is death. Third implication from these verses is that life and death in one sense are a choice Notice, again, Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam and Eve had a choice. Adam and Eve had a choice. The entire garden was, yes, Yes, you can eat that. Yes, eat that. Yes, do that. All of it, yes, but one no. And Adam and Eve said, well, let's do that thing then. And they chose death. They chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They chose to do the one thing that God commanded them not to do. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how beautiful and precious and glorious it is to be made in the image of God. And yet, I want you to understand the depths of our sin. That we, out of all of God's creation, other than the angels who fell and sinned against God, we alone say to God, no. Only us. Only us. Years later, many years later, God's people would be given the same choice. This time, the setting is not a garden paradise, but a barren desert wilderness. And Moses is nearing his death. And and he gives a final sermon to the people, and he says this in Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and, and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, I love the way that Jesus' storybook Bible tells the story after Moses says to the people, choose life. They say, we will, we promise. And yet, not even a generation passes and once again, God's people choose death. Their hearts would turn away. They wouldn't listen to God's word. They would serve other gods. Dear brother, sister, friend, today every single one of us has been given the same choice. And to a person, every single person that's ever sat in one of these seats, that's ever walked in this room, that's ever set foot on these shores, that's ever breathed oxygen on this planet, every single one of us but one have chosen the same death that our first parents chose. Romans 3 puts it this way, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. This is the heart of man. Rebellious, choosing death over and over and over again. So Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brother, sister, friend, do you realize that you too have chosen, by your sin, you have chosen death? You have chosen to rebel against the God of life. You've chosen to turn your back on him. Maybe you say, well, I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm really not that bad. I mean, I'm not like the, the Nazis in World War II. Listen, God's standard is not just a little bit better than the Nazis. You understand that, right? God's standard is obedience to his law. And if we were to summarize the law as Moses does uh, through the inspiration of the Spirit and and the Ten Commandments, and you were to measure yourself up against those Ten Commandments, I would imagine, in fact, I would guarantee that every single person in this room would find themselves guilty. You ever told a lie? You ever stolen? Have you ever dishonored your father and mother? Maybe you're clinging to the fact that you've never killed a person, but Jesus says to even hate someone or call them a fool or flip them off on the highway is to commit murder in your heart. To even look at another person with lust is to commit adultery in the heart. And that's not even to mention the ones that all of us commit, like covetousness or, or failing to keep the Lord God first above all other gods. Listen, we are guilty. Ten out of ten, we have fallen. Every single last one of us. And the wages of sin is death. This might seem pretty hopeless. If we're all given this choice and none of us choose rightly, why does anything even matter? Because there is one who chose life. He too was tempted, not in a garden paradise, but in a desert wilderness. And one by one, as Satan came to him and tempted him, he resisted those temptations, never sinned and died on the cross as if he had committed every sin i don't think we fully understand the depths of what jesus did on the cross When he is in the garden crying out to the Father, let this cup pass from me, do you realize what he's about to do? Jesus, who has never once tasted the stain of sin, is is now going to experience the shame of every sin. Now listen, there's not a person in this room that hasn't felt shame because of sin, but thankfully, none of you have felt the shame of every sin. Can you imagine the weight of that? Can you imagine the weight of experiencing shame that you have never experienced in eternity and all of it, every single sin of God's people poured out on him? That's what he did. And so 2 Corinthians 5 says, for our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Dear friend, if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, listen, we would plead with you, choose life today. As our brother Mike reminded us earlier, it's not by working, but by receiving as a gift the amazing grace that comes to us, not through your work, but through the work of God in Christ on the cross in your behalf. Life and death are a choice fourth implication from genesis chapter 2 is that god is sovereign over life and death god is sovereign over life and death we see that he is sovereign over life and that he is the one that breathes life into adam and into eve According to his timetable, when he desires, when he chooses, God gives life to Adam and Eve, and not a second before his desire. It is his will that life would enter into those bodies, and he gives it when he wills. And he takes it away. He's sovereign over death. God warns them that death is the consequence of sin, and yet if you know the story of Adam and Eve, you know that their physical death doesn't occur right away. He says the day you'll eat of it, you'll die. Immediately as they eat of it, they're separated. There's a spiritual death that incurs, but the physical death that Adam and Eve eventually face does not happen until God ordains it to be so. So if you go forward just a few chapters to Genesis chapter 5 verse 5 it says that all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. So for 930 years Adam experiences a slow and painful observation of the effects of sin. And he dies exactly when God intends him to. God is sovereign over life and death. In 1 Samuel, Samuel's mother Hannah prays to the Lord and she says in First Samuel chapter 2, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, that means the grave, and he raises up. God himself says in Deuteronomy 32, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. God himself says, I am sovereign over life and death. Here's why this is so important for us. When we say life and death are a choice, like we just said a moment ago, we, we do mean in a spiritual sense you can choose between life and death, between following the path of sin that leads to destruction or following Christ who himself is life. We don't mean that you have the choice to decide when your life should end. You did not choose when you first first would breathe the breath of life. And dear brother, sister, friend, no matter how much pain you're in today, you do not get to choose. You do not have authority over when you breathe your last breath. That alone belongs to God. He is sovereign over life and death. That's at least some of what this distinction means. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? I'll give you four applications Four applications from this distinction between life and death. Number one, life is worth fighting for. A couple of weeks ago, I told you about a scene from The Revenge of the Sith. Anakin has been having these dreams. Anakin Skywalker has been having these dreams. Bad dreams about bad things that are going to happen to people that he loves. And he visits the wisest being that he knows Yoda himself and Yoda and all his wisdom says to him, death is a natural part of life. Rejoice for those around you who transform into the force. This is the belief of oneism, that everything comes from one substance. So Therefore, death doesn't matter. It, it, it's not, you know, you shouldn't complain, you shouldn't grieve, you shouldn't, you shouldn't worry, you shouldn't fight death, just accept it. It's just part of all that there is. That is not the worldview of Scripture. The worldview of Scripture clearly and consistently says that life is worth fighting for. If it's a good gift from a good God, it's worth fighting for, no matter what. So, some practical implications then, dear brother, sister, friend. We we fight against abortion. I said to you at the beginning of this year that abortion is the greatest injustice in our world today because it takes the greatest gift, life, away from the most vulnerable persons, the unborn. Listen, listen to me clearly, brother, sister, friend, please listen to me. Hating abortion is not a political stance, first and foremost. It is because we believe the Bible. It is because we believe that life, all life, all human life is precious. Now, more and more today, the argument is being made that the life, the unborn life in a mother's womb It's Yes, it's life, and yes, it's human life, but it's not yet a human person. And so therefore, because personhood doesn't begin until a later point of development, it is okay to take that life because it's not a person. Personhood happens later. Now, the hard part, if if you can get them to talk about it, is, is to ask them and get them to admit, when does personhood begin? At what point is life worthy of life? Someone like Peter Singer would say that, that life is worthy of life at a later age, even after birth, and so infanticide is also permissible. Listen, this is nothing but Lebens und Wertenlebens. It's classified and dressed up for the 21st century. It's the same demonic disease, life unworthy of life. Listen, listen to what God's Word says about life in the womb. Psalm 139, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. God is sovereign over life. God gives life in the womb. Dear brother, sister, if you're a follower of Jesus, for you to fight against abortion might be to be involved in a ministry like CareNet, counseling young moms, expectant moms, and encouraging them not to give up the life growing in them. It might be to, to stand outside of abortion clinic and hold a sign, and if nothing else, be a voice for someone who's choosing to take life away. Listen, that's not all that Christians should stand against. If life is worth fighting for, we fight against abortion. We also should fight against suicide. More and more, people are talking about death with dignity. Euthanasia literally means good death, good dying. Suicide is, is presented as a humane alternative for those who have a lower quality of life and want to die on their own terms in their own time. This argument is based on two faulty assumptions. The first assumption is that death is better than life with suffering. That's what they're saying. For someone to say that that we ought to be able to take our own life when life hurts enough, what we're saying is that death is better than life plus suffering. That's not true. It's not true. Listen, Holly and I were talking a couple of weeks ago. We were watching a Disney movie with the kids. and. Almost every single Disney movie, the characters become who they are, the great person that they become by the end of the story, through suffering, through tragedy, through pain. It is suffering that often makes us into greatness on the world's terms. So why would we think that that life is only precious if it's not accompanied by suffering? It's a faulty assumption. Another faulty assumption about the euthanasia movement is that suicide ends suffering. Listen, brother, sister, friend, suicide does not end suffering. It shifts suffering. If you're not a Christian, and this is painful to even say or or think about, but it's true, if you're not a follower of Jesus, suicide simply shifts, trades earthly suffering for eternal suffering. That is not a good trade. If you're a follower of Jesus, suicide simply shifts your suffering onto the people around you that you love. Your suicide will bring pain to those who love you. It may lead to copycats. It makes it harder for struggling Christians to keep following Jesus. And let me just say a word to anybody in this room who might find themselves Struggling in this area. Please hold on. Talk to someone. If, if God's people ought to be anything. We ought to be a place where we can talk. Honestly and openly. And clearly with one another. Even about the darkest parts of our lives. If life is worth fighting for. Then we should fight for the sick. In ancient Rome. Destitute families would often abandon the chronically ill to die. In Rome, sick or elderly slaves were r- routinely left to waste away on Tiber Island. Unwanted children were often left to die of exposure. If a father decided that the family couldn't afford to feed another child, that child would be abandoned on the steps of a temple or in the public square. Almost without exception, defective newborns were left exposed to the elements to die. We have an ancient letter from a father to his wife where he says about her unborn child, I hope to be with you soon, and if the baby comes before I am there, if it's a boy, let him live. If it's a girl, expose her and let her die. In the third century AD, an epidemic Swept across northern Africa, Italy, and the Western Empire. As many as 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome. The sick were abandoned in the streets. The dead were left unburied. But the Christians alone cared for the sick. Sociologist and Christian uh, demographer Rodney Stark claims that death rates in cities with Christian communities may have been half that of other cities. Why? Because Christians were caring for the sick. And for the last 2,000 years, the Christian tradition has given us a rich heritage of hospitals, orphanages, feeding the homeless, caring for the addicted. Listen, I remember years ago when a, when a tornado devastated Joplin, Missouri, hearing a CNN anchor on live national television saying that FEMA's not here yet, but the Southern Baptists are here. Why? Why? Because we care about life. Life is worth fighting for. Sin is worth fighting against. Second application sin is worth fighting against. Proverbs 13, 14 says, The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Listen to me, brother, sister, friend. Sin always leads to death. Sin always leads to death. Do you remember as Frodo is carrying the one ring towards Mount Mordor, the ring begins to take him over in a sense to the point that In many ways, he's no longer himself, and he begins to tell himself as he gets closer and closer to destroying this ring of power, if I just put it on just for a little bit, that will, it'll relieve some of this pain and torment I'm feeling, and he tells himself that he can manage it. He can control it. So, too, do every single one of us with our sin. We think that it's a pet that we can control, but we can't. You cannot manage your sin. Remember a preacher years ago saying that sin always takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. I wonder if there's someone in this room that finds themselves this very morning that you have been led along, enslaved by your sin. Your bitterness, your greed, your lust, your doubts, fears, anxieties. And you find yourself not the master of your sin, but its slave. Listen, today, today, God sets before you life. Choose life. For the unbeliever in this room, that's to Turn from your sin and trust Him. Trust Jesus who died in your place and to the followers of Jesus in this room, listen, listen to me. No matter how many steps you've wandered from Christ, it's always just one step back. That's not true in any other relationship, by the way. You sinned against your wife, your husband, your children, your parents, you might have to take a lot of steps to restore that relationship. With God, if we confess our sins, He is faithful. You can trust Him and just. He's going to do it in a just way. To do what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to scrub us down from all unrighteousness. You know, sin is a lot like going to the beach. And I I have a love-hate relationship with the beach. More hate than love, probably, Um, You all should be grateful that my wife deeply loves the beach, which means we're staying here for a long, long, long time. But a big part of my hate relationship with the beach is all the sand. Uh, We went to Pensacola and got to spend some time with my parents, and it was a wonderful thing, but we'll be getting sand out of stuff for years, I think. Um, I I think that that's kind of what sin's like, Man, you get get sin, and it's kind of like in every crevice of your body, there's sin. It's all over you, and it's over all your stuff, and everything is just corrupted and affected by it. And God says, confess, and I'll wash you down. And listen to me. He does not miss anything. What a good God. What an amazing God. Third application. Death will come to all. Death will come to all. The book Unbroken about Louis Zamperini was subtitled A Story of Survival. In many ways, it, it was a story of survival. Zamperini survived bombings, plane crashes, shark attacks, disease, starvation, dehydration, imprisonment, torture, and more. But eventually, there would come a challenge that even Zamperini could not survive, on July second, 2014, he did not survive his battle against pneumonia. After 97 years of surviving, he finally lost the battle against death and opened his eyes in the presence of his Maker. So, in his book, Remember Death, Matthew McCullough says that at one level, calling Zamperini's or anyone else's story a survival story is like describing a fall from a 30-foot-story building, a 30-story building, a survival story because it ends before the subject hits the ground. Listen, there are no survival stories in this life. Psalm 39:4. The psalmist prays, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. If if COVID-19 has taught us anything, I hope it's at least helped us to sense the reality of our mortality. Dear brother, sister, friend, you will Die. unless Christ returns before you breathe your last breath, the day is coming when you will no longer suck in oxygen on this planet. It's sobering to think about. It's hard to think about, but it's true. Death will come to every single one of us. Here's the question. Are you ready? Are you ready, dear friend? Have you turned from your sins and put your faith in Jesus? That is the most important thing to do to prepare for that day. Because the day is coming, a day that none of us knows when we will open our eyes and see Him. And on that day, our excuses will matter none. It will not matter what your intentions were. It will not matter what you plan to do tomorrow. What will matter will only be what you have already done. Have you, will you today choose life and turn and trust this Jesus? Death will come to every single one of us. And to those of us who are followers of Jesus, listen, listen to me. You don't have to fear death anymore. You don't have to fear augustine once said that every single one of us is going to face some death but many christians spend most of their life worrying a thousand deaths that they never face and they spend all of their life in fear of what could kill them rather than living here and now dear christian The world says, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. The Christian says, eat, drink, and be merry because yesterday we were dead. We don't have to fear anymore if we know Jesus. Death is but the doorway into a new world where every chapter is better than the one that came before, as C.S. Lewis says. Number four, the gospel is our only hope in 1961, a reporter named Hera Arendt reported on the war crimes of Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann was the Nazi operative responsible for organizing the transportation of millions of Jews and others to various concentration camps in support of the Nazis' final solution. In many ways, Eichmann was the kind of logistical mastermind behind the execution of Lebens und Werten Lebens, life unworthy of life. Yet, when Arendt observed Eichmann on trial there in 1961, she was shocked by what she saw. He was ordinary. He was rather bland. He was a bureaucrat who, in her words, was neither perverted nor sadistic, but terrifyingly normal. And she coined the term, the banality of evil, to describe what she saw. Sometimes evil isn't the, the foaming rage of a dictator like Adolf Hitler. Sometimes it's sitting at a desk checking a red X on a government form. Sometimes it's driving the common welfare ambulance to pick up the next victim. But here's the point. This type of evil is in every single one of us. Every single one of us. The difference between you and me and Adolf Hitler is a difference in degree, not a difference in kind. In other words, the same sins in Eichmann and Hitler and everybody else in the entire Holocaust, the same root sins lie in every single heart that has ever lived on this planet except for one. We need someone to pay the penalty for our evil. That someone must have no evil of his own. And that someone is none other than Christ himself. Hebrews 2 chapter 9 says, We see him for a little while. Was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's the free offer of the gospel, friend that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death and rose from the dead so that you, yes, you could be saved. We need the gospel. It's our only hope. And for those of us who have trusted in this Jesus, the day is coming when as Revelation 21 says, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Or as the lion Aslan says, in the lion witch in the wardrobe, even death itself works backwards. That's what awaits those of us who trust in this Jesus So if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, we plead with you to choose life today, to turn and trust this Jesus today. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, fight against sin, fight for life, fight for faith in the gospel. Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. When faced with trials on every side, we know, we know the outcome is secure. And Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. Will you pray with me?